and delighted that we're joined by Ian Reid, who's the Chief Executive of the Organising Committee for the Birmingham Commonwealth Games of 2022, an event that I know we're all uh, really looking forward to, uh, but equally an event that I'm sure uh, has had uh, challenges anyway, which have just been uh, added to during this uh, ridiculously strange and unique period of time, which I'm sure we, we'll talk about uh, a little later on with Ian. But Ian, before we start, welcome to the den, first of all. Thanks, Frank. Uh, good to see you. And uh, I, I was saying to Abby earlier, I was wondering whether you being a Scot, me being a Scouser, we needed subtitles, but she assures me that the uh, the Brummies will attune their ears accordingly. Um, so listen, you've got this fantastically exciting gig uh, as the organising chief executive. So tell me what uh, your career to date's looked like. What's your career journey been thus far? Yeah, so um, I started off, well, I suppose I still am a, a boring accountant. <laughs> um, did the traditional training uh, with a, with an accountancy firm up in Scotland. And um, like uh, a lot of colleagues, that was kind of through an, an audit environment, Frank, which is a pretty good learning base, actually, in terms of general um, business understanding and did three years of that. And then um, I moved into what at the time was a kind of, um, the big thing that was happening in terms of infrastructure works, which was about supporting kind of public-private projects. So I um, was involved in a team at EY who advised on major infrastructure projects across the country. So everything from rail regeneration schemes, um, housing association support, um, airports. Um, and mostly that was focused on the kind of funding side of things. So working quite closely um, with local authorities and um, private funders and uh, a lot of work with the banks as well around getting money into to that infrastructure development. And following that, uh, I um, ended up doing a lot of work with one particular client, which um, was at the time known as Glasgow Housing Association, and they um, effectively picked up all the council housing around the city of Glasgow, which at the time I think was about 85 thousand homes which transferred from local authority ownership into this new entity so I was involved in doing that transaction and then ended up taking a leadership role in that new organization um, and at the time that was government policy was around if you set up one of these new arm's length organizations then um, it could access significant borrowing which the local authority couldn't do so the whole plan there being about um, completely refurbishing the housing stock across um, across the city while I was in that role, um, uh, that was my first transition into the events world, and I was approached uh, to consider a, a kind of financial controller type role um, when the Commonwealth Games were awarded to, to Glasgow. So I uh, um, have a huge passion for sport. You and I have just been talking about football before we come on here, but I'll watch um, almost any sport. And so it was a huge opportunity for me. Um, these... Um, events and particularly Commonwealth Games are effectively big public-private partnerships. So they are funded both by the public sector, but also there's a significant commercial revenue requirement. So I, I had a kind of complementary skill set, um, but also have a real passion for the power of what these events can do in terms of changing cities and regions. And uh, long story short, ended up being successful uh, in, in taking up that role. 
uh, ultimately becoming the finance director there uh, in 2010. So went on this kind of journey with the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow where I was probably employee number three or four, I think, at the outset. And then I was literally the last person to lock the door um, after after the event with the 40 or 50,000 workforce had all taken off. And uh, I was left with the exciting bit of fighting with contractors and paying all the bills, etc. Um, but actually, it was a, was a fabulous experience, not, not just in terms of the event itself, which I think was transformational for the city, but also in relation to my own career journey, because it's very rare you get to work in um, an organisation where everyone's kind of focused on that opening ceremony and those 11 days of sport and the cultural programmes. It's quite powerful in terms of um, getting everyone focused on a huge transformational event. But then also, personally, it's an organisation that goes from a startup to one of the highest growth companies in the city to uh, one of the biggest companies in the city and then back to nothing, all in the space of, in the case of Glasgow, in the space of maybe six and a half, seven years. In the case of Birmingham, we'll do that same journey and we'll probably do that in about four, four and a half years. So um, you, you get all the, all the challenges that come with all those different um, periods of growth in a company um, and... Uh, yeah, a fabulous journey, some brilliant people involved and, and hugely enjoyed it. So when that came to an end and I, and I locked those uh, doors in, uh, I think about March 2015, one of the sponsors actually from the Games at the time, um, a company called AG Bar, probably best known um, for the fact that they manufacture a soft drink that's very popular in Scotland called Iron Brew, but they also, um, they also own a lot of other businesses in Strathmore Water and Rubicon um, Fruit Juice and um, a number of other products, but they, they at the time were buying a cocktail business of all things. And I just finished my contract and they said to me, um, would you come over on a short term contract and uh, finish this transaction and help us in terms of integrating that business uh, in, into, into the wider group. Um, and I went over there, ended up working there um, in a senior role for about three years, um, relatively close to home no intention of moving and then um, I got a phone call from the government to say um, there's been a quick turnaround, um, Birmingham is now bidding for, for the Games um, on the back of Durban, for those of you who are not aware, Durban was originally awarded the 2022 Commonwealth Games to South Africa, decided, um, the Commonwealth Games Federation decided for a variety of reasons um, that they couldn't deliver that. So. Reran a process. It was actually Birmingham versus Liverpool, if you if you remember Frank, and um, and Birmingham ultimately were successful. And on that award, government contacted me and said, "Look, we know you did a lot of that startup work in um, in Scotland. Would you be willing to support us um, down in Birmingham to do some of that? Because we're up against it time wise." So I was effectively given given the the um, given the question at that point: Do I give up? Uh, my kind of full-time job in Scotland, quite close to home, um, for a, at the time for a six-month contract um, to start up the, the, the organising committee in Birmingham. But um, having been through the journey on the events, um, they're just they're just incredible and hugely powerful. And I really missed that buzz. So convinced my wife and family that it'd be a good idea to, to do that, um, and came down in that interim role, which was extended a couple of times, and then ultimately. And was successful um, in getting the role full time and um, living now here, not far from the office in, in Birmingham. I'm absolutely loving it. So, so I'll draw breath there. That's that's a quick career. That's a quick career journey. Yeah, thanks for the whirlwind tour there. It's a fascinating journey that you've been on, though, Ian. And uh, just 
stick with the Glasgow experience for a moment because uh, I recall back in the 90s um, visiting the city just after the uh, Capital of Culture um, bid that you've been successful in and it was a fabulous um, year that Glasgow hosted. I think it was Glasgow smiles better was the phrase that was coined uh, at the time. Uh, and again, I think that, you know, even some of the people that will be listening to this interview will be thinking that there's an awful lot of expense. There's quite a bit of risk. What are the advantages and benefits potentially for these things? And we'll get specifically into what it might mean for Birmingham. But certainly from Glasgow's perspective, it was transformational, wasn't it? That capital of culture bid really did change people's perceptions of the city. And then, as you say, um, probably about 20 years or so later, the Commonwealth Games were hosted there. Uh, Glasgow is a very different place now uh, to the one that we can remember, well, some of us can remember, uh, back in the 80s. I think that's right. And, uh, and I think in, in the case of Glasgow, looking back and... Um, you know, some of the perceptions about that city back in the 60s and 70s and its industrial heritage and some of the challenges it went through. Um, the, the late 80s and, and the European city of culture in 1990, I think in 88 there was also um, the Glasgow Garden Festival, which was a huge event. And those two um, events, I think, the most powerful thing they did was change, I think, external perceptions, as you say, of the city. But they also ingrained, I think, a new sort of degree of pride in, in the residents, which was probably missing a bit, uh, and the opportunity for people to show off their city, but also a lot of them part of that delivery in doing that. And, and it, was a, it was a huge game changer. Uh, the city benefited hugely in terms of inward investment and tourism on the back of those two events. And I think that was the real thinking behind why Glasgow bid for the Commonwealth Games. And, it's an interesting comparator with Birmingham because Birmingham has almost stepped in in terms of an opportunity in, in, in 2022 uh, and really stepped up to the mark in terms of delivery. Glasgow started thinking about putting a gay Commonwealth Games on in 2014 back in 2001. So 13 years of planning this. And interestingly, on the back, the civic leaders there on the back of the European um, City of Culture and, and the Garden Festival, you know, they recognised that the city did need another boost effectively, did need another raising of profile, had seen what the Commonwealth Games could have done for other cities, and obviously Manchester came along in 2002 and, and, and focused its efforts on that, recognising the power of those type of events. Uh, and, and that's proven to be the case, I think, if you, if you speak to anybody around the, the city of Glasgow, um, they, they will only have incredibly positive things to say about about the event. And look, that's not me giving myself a big head and, and saying it was fabulously organised and all the rest. We had our challenges along the way, which which we always do. Um, but what really happened was the city got behind it. Um, we tried our best to make sure local businesses benefited, right down to taxi drivers, shops, restaurants during the event itself. We were blessed with the weather, which was unusual in, in, in Glasgow. Um, and, and the whole city just celebrated and was really proud, proud to see them switching on their TVs every morning and wall-to-wall -wall coverage of their city and fabulous sport and world stars. And, you know, it's just, you know, completely transformational. And then the city did a great thing in terms of, you talked about Glasgow Smiles Better, and then the city relaunched a new branding campaign um, during Glasgow called People Makes Glasgow. 
people make Glasgow sorry with big pink banners everywhere and actually sponsored the games and put a lot of that signage around and used it again as another catalyst um, for, for that kind of tourism um, and inward investment model. So, yeah, hugely positive. And, uh, and we'll come on to Birmingham, of course, later in the discussion, but, but the opportunity is absolutely there for Birmingham to do as well, but actually a lot better. And I think the city's in a fab, in terms of where the city is and its regeneration, it, the timing could not be better. Um, and, and, and I'm really confident we can get those type of benefits, as I say, if not more, from, from the games in Birmingham. Uh, and as you say, Ian, you'd experienced you know, that fabulous buzz that you get from organising such a major event. Uh, then you'd sort of gone back to normal life, if I can put it that way. Um, but this challenge clearly excited you, and why wouldn't it? You know, it is a fabulous opportunity. I can't wait for 2022. Uh, I think it's going to be great. You know, that fortnight and the build-up to it will be, I'm sure, uh, absolutely superb. Uh, but of course, what you wouldn't have foreseen, no one did, uh, when you signed that contract, was that we were going to be hit with this COVID crisis. Uh, and you've outlined very clearly that the event anyway was relatively short term in terms of its lead-in time in comparison to Glasgow and Manchester and other cities that have delivered uh, the Commonwealth Games, uh, in the UK at least. Um, I would say two things though, Ian. Firstly, um, sometimes the longer you have to think about something, the more things can go wrong. Uh, and secondly, uh, you're in a city that has certainly got momentum and has started, I think, over the last three, four, five years to really start to be seen again as a major core city, a major force uh, within the UK. And, you know, forgive me if you don't agree with this, the, the people who are watching in from Birmingham today, but my feeling certainly was it had lost its mojo a little um, seven, eight, nine years ago. Uh, but certainly, you know, I've said this when I've, whenever I've, I've visited Birmingham, we've hosted events there. And I say it in Leeds, in Manchester and Liverpool as well. I get the feeling that Birmingham is very much a city on the up. So despite the fact that you've got this challenge of COVID that was totally unexpected, you've got some real assets as well. Uh, and as I say, that momentum that I think will carry us through to 2022 in a positive way. Yeah, completely agree. And I think... To pick up your first point about, um, you know, sometimes having less time focuses the mind, I, I couldn't agree more. I think looking back in the time period we had in Glasgow, there was planning phases followed by planning phases followed by planning phases. And actually having the shorter timeline um, has got everyone from the off into a delivery mindset. Um, and, and I think that's, that's hugely beneficial in terms of getting over the line. And we can talk about COVID and in a minute and how that's impacted that um, but but I absolutely agree with you on, on, on the city and the regions you know I, I'll be completely honest I didn't know the city particularly well I'd visited Birmingham a number of times but um, never stayed for any length of time um, and I've now been living in the city for, for over two years firstly I should say be made hugely welcome and um, hugely um, enjoying the, the, the experience but but it does feel even from the infrastructure right through to the people, right through to external perceptions, it does feel like it has momentum. I think you used that word and you're spot on. And every time um, you go out there, the city uh, looks a bit different. You know, things are being built, things are changing. There's, there's a significant amount of private and public capital investment into the city. 
and I know there's, and I speak to them regularly, people who perhaps haven't been to the city even just for six months or a year, come back in for meetings with myself and are blown away by how it's changed. And, and I'm sitting fortunate enough to have a view that, you know, over at Centenary Square and the tram works that are currently being undertaken in Broad Street. And it's, you know, it's incredible. Um, and, and then you overlay that with everything that's coming here. So the investment through HS2, the Commonwealth Games, just down the road in the region, the city of culture. You know, it, fe it feels like the place to be at the moment. And, uh, and if you put that in a COVID context, it's quite interesting because I think like every other business, we were, we were a bit worried when COVID came along and clearly we are, we've got some degree of protection with the amount of public investment there. And, and we are lucky in that respect compared to, I know the real challenges that private business have. But at the same time, we were also concerned about, will this event still have the political and public support? Because um, it's a significant public investment at a time when, when clearly economic conditions are, are going to be incredibly challenging. And, you know, almost in totality, and any negative feedback about that, politicians all cross party recognise that, that actually the time's right for this in terms of the catalyst and investment it will bring the job opportunities. It's a significant amount of central government money coming into the region that perhaps wouldn't otherwise be coming in. Um, you know, in terms of the ability to engage, to celebrate, to put pride in. So the government rhetoric I keep hearing is they're, they're now talking about 2020 being the year of sickness, 21 the year of recovery, and 22 the year of celebration. And the Commonwealth Games has been right at the centre of the year of celebration. And the other great thing is because of that, you know, right up to, to number 10 are really now focused on this event in terms of how good it has to be, which, um, you know, historically perhaps they might have turned their heads and a couple of months to go or something and made sure they were up there and got in the photo shots and everything else. But there's a real, there's a real desire now from central government around making this the centre of what will be a huge year in 2022. It's the, it's the 100th anniversary of the BBC, Queen's Jubilee, um, and, and the game's been right in the middle of that so so yeah I think it's a uh, you know despite despite all the huge challenges I think touch wood 2022 is the right time for the event and there's some real difficulties with other events as we know taking place next year and the huge uncertainty around whether that's going to be possible or not hopefully given that extra year um, this might be the first sort of major multi-sport event certainly in Europe where everyone can come together, celebrate and, uh, and, and, and really uh, come out the back of some of the, the challenges over the previous period. So, yeah, really exciting. And you've made the point there very well, Ian, I think, that this is, although a Birmingham Commonwealth Games, a UK Games, the country will be looking for uh, hooks to hang its hat on because we need to showcase our product, we need to showcase uh, the nation, not just the, the city of Birmingham, but of course, on the back of that, uh, our job is to make sure, of course, Birmingham does get uh, the bulk of the coverage uh, and is seen as what it is, a fantastic city. Uh, so as you're beginning your plans to, to host the Games, I know that you will be thinking about what are the sort of opportunities we can give our in Indigenous community in terms of jobs, what can we do in terms of supply chain and engage with our local businesses? What are the sort of things that you think uh, Birmingham businesses, West Midlands businesses uh, should be looking out for in the coming months as far as that's concerned? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the great thing about an organising committee is it has opportunities for, for most business sectors. So, um, you know, that can be everything from the operational areas of supporting the venues, technology, 
um, transport, catering, security, right through to we need support in all our back of office functions and our marketing areas, HR, legal, finance, and then of course there's the whole creative sector as well and we're putting on two huge ceremonies. We've got a six month running cultural programme. We've got a Queen's Baton Relay, which is going around the Commonwealth and, and spending significant time. So, so there are, the main thing to, to note is that there should be opportunities for, for a lot of sectors to get involved. And that will either be directly with us or through a significant supply chain. Now, we as the organising committee, our role is very much around putting the games on. What, what we don't do is build things. We tend to rent venues, we don't build them. But in terms of those capital projects, which are being led by, by the local authorities, there's also significant opportunities uh, in relation to the supply chain for those um, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of, of, of capital works as well. So you know, we understand the timing's critical. Um, that, that money needs to get into that supply chain quickly and into local businesses. We've got about, from now until the game's well over, directly in the organising com com uh, committee, well over 300 million pounds of contracts going to market um, and it's starting to ramp up now for so I know a lot of businesses have already been successful I think in value terms well over 80% of our procurement to date has gone to West Midlands businesses and um, so we are delivering on that but but also um, you know we recognize that it, that it's really important that that continues so um, you know we've got a business portal on there if you haven't already done so and you're um, on the call at the moment um, looking for opportunities then my advice would be it's birmingham2022.com forward slash business portal um, you can register your business and once you're registered and tick the sectors that you're interested in the, the system proactively will let you know when there's opportunities um, coming along and, th and then in recruitment you know we know um, when this furlough scheme ends there's going to be a huge um, rise in unemployment I don't think that's going to be avoided so we recognize that you know our jobs are coming at at the right time hopefully we are currently in the organizing committee sitting at around 150 staff we as an organization will peak at about 1200 people come games but the supply chain of contractors will be out looking for tens of thousands of people now those opportunities will probably be a little bit shorter term um, and what we are looking for in relation to that is can we use some of those jobs as well as some volunteering opportunities um, and we're working with the combined authority to do this, but to um, to really target th those who are perhaps in, in longer term unemployment or not in, not in any education or training, and to guarantee them jobs through the Commonwealth Games and, and build a significant outplacement programme. So that, what's been branded the Commonwealth Skills Academy, um, is currently been funded. Um, the combined authority have already committed a million pounds to that. I think the central government will come in on the back of it. Um, and we will put thousands of opportunities aside um, for those who have got real uh, employment challenges and, and hopefully take them through a training journey, give them the guarantee of paid work and then, uh, and then lead them to a longer term job. So I've already started those conversations with some of the bigger businesses in the region about getting them to commit to, to taking people on on the back of that programme. And uh, informally, I've already got some of those um, chief executives saying that, that they will do that. So there's this... So far, there's a kind of seedlings of a really, really strong program there um, to help the region out of recovery. And that alongside HS2, um, these are two projects which we, we recognise are, you know, are significant and, and important to the, to the region's recovery. Uh, 
interesting points that you make there, Ian. I was talking to somebody from Birmingham earlier this week and they said, oh, what a time to be hosting the Games COVID. Uh, and I said, yeah, what a great time. Uh, because actually, you know, you, you've got opportunities available in Birmingham that other parts of the country simply aren't going to have because the Commonwealth Games are, uh, are about to take place in 2022. Uh, you've already mentioned the fact that the government will be determined to see those games delivered successfully. So they're going to get right behind the project. Uh, and I guess um, when you're looking at your day-to-day -day job and the role that you and your organising committee have got, the big question is going to be movements of people, getting athletes into uh, the, the village, in and out, safety, all that sort of stuff. And of course, that means infrastructure spend. Uh, and again, uh, I would suggest that the governments are perhaps going to be a little more uh, favourable in terms of asks because, as I say, they're going to be desperate to see these games be a success. So so just turning to that, Ian, what, what are the sort of uh, issues that you're facing there and what are the sort of things that we can expect to see in terms of the change in face of Birmingham as the games approach? Yeah, I think to pick up the main point there around what what does the games bring in terms of infrastructure? The, the, the real power of it is acceleration, and and um, and you know th there can always be a lot of big infrastructure projects that can run and run or never quite get approval, or when they do get approval, they take significant time to actually get spades into the ground and everything else. The real power of a games in that space is that it gives you a firm deadline, and things have to happen. Um, you know, so so we know these tram works outside my building here need to be finished in 2021 so that they can take people in 2022. We know that the that the works out in the the regeneration works out and the flyover and the roads and the way out to the, the main stadium need to be finished. Um, we know as well, not just in terms of direct games, um, transport and, and other infrastructure, but what we've found actually over the last couple of years is that the private sector and some of the third sector organisations in the city they know it's their chance in the spotlight. So why wouldn't you want your buildings to look better than ever? So if you, I talked about Centenary Square here earlier and, you know, there's plans if you look at, you know, the front of the symphony halls ripped out and they're going to do all that up, the whole square's changed. The Red Theatre's considering some plans. Birmingham University's got a building in that square, which has currently been refurbished. HSBC building's just been, a lot of that is happening because people recognise that this is their time, that square's likely to be on broadcast shots all around the world. Why not show off um, the best of your, your organisation? So it's a catalyst um, for a lot of that. And there was an announcement just uh, yesterday, I think, around the, the, there's a new um, train station going in at Birmingham University, which services some of our, um, some of our venues. And, and, and that investment, I think, a £10 million refurbishment has just been confirmed, and that will go ahead as well. Looks looks incredible. So all of these projects as you, you rightly say, some of them are directly required and funded through the Games budget. Others are, are just, a, the Games becomes a catalyst for all of that uh, or accelerates it all at a time when it really needs to be uh, accelerated. So, so yeah, we, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're really pleased with how that's gone. Not, that's not to say there's not been challenges. The, the problem always um, with the Games in Birmingham has been time, as we talked about earlier. And time, I think, not, not so big an issue in terms of some of our operational requirements. I think we can overcome that. But it's always a challenge in terms of capital projects. And then, of course, COVID comes along and uh, and some of the capital sites go down completely um, or the supply chain's impacted. 
um, or there's health and safety changes that are required that just slow everything down. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be remiss of me not to say that those projects are up against it and uh, currently under review, but, you know, everybody's working to, to, to try and get there. So, um, so yeah, and, and huge amount of investment, which is, which is the main point. And I suppose the obvious question, Ian, because these games, uh, as you've referenced, come to Birmingham because uh, there wasn't the confidence in the previous city, I think you said it was Durban, uh, to deliver. Uh, we're still on track, you think, for um, the date? There's no reason for us to be considering shifting it back at six months a year? Yeah, as, as you can imagine, um, when COVID came along, there was a significant internal discussion and with our board around all of those things, um, which which ended up us confirming that we would stay in the summer of 2022. What we did actually do was move our dates back one day, not to buy yourself an extra day because of COVID, but simply because everything else was up in the air. So the World Athletics Championships has moved to the, to the summer of 2022. And also um, the UEFA Women's Football Championships, which is taking place in England, actually, it moved from 21 to 22 as well. So there was a bit of there was a bit of manoeuvring required to make sure a, we had the appropriate gaps between events so that athletes could compete in both, but also for broadcasting schedules and things like that. We had a position where it was looking like our opening ceremony might be on at the same time as a as a UEFA um, Women's Semi Final, which is in no one's interest. So. So working with all of those other events, we did actually move back a, a day to make all of that work. But, but in the bigger question, um, we uh, looked at all the options. We obviously looked at what the implications would be of moving back, which sounds sensible, but it's not quite so easy in terms of all the contracts that you've got in place with dates that are in those. But also the sporting calendar itself is a, is a really really congested place. So you tend to your event tends to have its window and when you start moving that window around, you tend to find there's other big events, whether they're world championships with the same sports or everything else. So it's not that simple. But actually, a lot, a lot of the discussion was about, you know what, we've got great people working this project. It's a great city and region. Let's back ourselves, you know. Yes, we'll have some challenges along the way. Yes, we might have to move the delivery model a little bit. But we've got a lot of great people working on here who are... It's some fabulous ingenuity and flexibility. So, you know, let, let's put the shoulders out a little bit, back ourselves and say, Do you know what? There are other people moving, but we're going to deliver. So, um, so I really like that mindset. I'm one of those people. I'm sure we can do it. Um, and uh, so far, so good. Yeah, as I said, there will be bumps in the road. There would be bumps in the road if we move back a year as well. Um, but I'm confident that, that we can deliver. And, and remembering back to the rationale that the Federation gave the games to Birmingham was that 95% of the sports venues are in place, they're built, they're operated, they've got some great staff in them who, who know how to run events um, month on month. And, and they're part of the solution here. So, you know, in terms of the infrastructure works, they are significant, but certainly nowhere near the scale that you might see in, in certain other events. Great to hear such positivity and confidence, Ian. Um, and, and you made another interesting observation in your open remarks about the Glasgow experience, which I think is very relevant in Birmingham, which is that it gave civic pride back to the city's residents and gave people a bit of confidence about the place uh, that they lived. Uh, and again, one of the things that I would say about Birmingham is that as great as it's done over the past five or six years, it's not been brilliant, in my opinion, in terms of shouting about that. 
Uh, and I think that's partly to do with the character and personality of Birmingham itself. Uh, as you've mentioned, Ian, it's one of the, if not the most friendly uh, city uh, in the UK. I mean, I, you know, I love coming to the place because it's such a welcoming place and you found the same, I'm sure. Um, but they do tend to sort of shy away a little, don't they, from shouting about the great things that they do. Uh, and I just wonder if that's something that the games might be able to transform a little because I'd like to see a bit more positivity, a bit more of that, as you put it, you know, shoulders back and look how great we are because Birmingham is in an absolutely fantastic place at the moment. But if they don't tell everyone about it, then nobody's really going to be uh, shaking the tree for them. So, uh, as I say, I think there's a, there's a big role for the games to play in that particular uh, se section of, of what we're looking at, isn't there? The marketing uh, perspective yeah. of Birmingham. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we recognise that we can provide that huge showcase to, to support that discussion. And interestingly, um, I think when we, when we put together our kind of vision for the games and we ended up with kind of five main pillars, one of which, and by far and away the most, um, the most important one, and which got, and sorry, I should have said that in doing that, we, we engaged with thousands of people across the region and, and asked them what they wanted from, from the event. And by far and away, the, the, the greatest, um, I suppose the greatest bit of feedback we got was, was that exact point, was we, we need this event to put the region on the map and give pride back to, you know, to the community to shout about it and to tell everybody about it. So, you know, I, I think everybody recognises that. I don't, I'm a Scots, I don't mind a bit of modesty, so I, I quite like that. But you're right, there's a time and a place and... But you need something to share about it as well. So let, you know, let's put on this fabulous show and then and then talk about it. And the other thing that the regions really recognised is that 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 it needs to invest in that whole trade, tourism, and inward investment program. So over and above the games budget, um, the government have committed recently, I think, about twenty-one million pounds, of which the combined authority I think is putting two or three million on top of that. Um, to put in place that dedicated programme, recognising that this is the once-in-a-generation opportunity to put the region on the map. Let's not make sure it's just a single blip and then it goes back to normal. What's the investment in infrastructure that's needed alongside that so that when people come to watch the games in Birmingham, they, they come back regularly. Um, we attract people to come here from national and international audiences. Um, yes, we want to make sure we get as many people local uh, involved locally, but also we need to really make sure we get the inward investment benefit as well. So, so that um, that's focused on doing that as well and that attraction piece. But also it's focused on um, making sure that we can put local businesses on the map. And when we're bringing heads of state, business leaders and everything else to the games, what's the programme that goes around that to showcase the great companies that, that are in the region? And also support those companies after the games to export to some of those Commonwealth Games countries. Uh, there is no doubt the government's investing in, in this event, as you said earlier, recognising it's kind of post-Brexit and and the UK needs to reposition itself in, in the kind of trading world and where is that? The Commonwealth's obviously a big part of that. So, you know, bringing the Commonwealth into, into the UK and into the West Midlands, um, we need to make sure there's a strategy in place to capitalise on that exposure and that benefit longer term. So, so there is a significant amount of resources getting put behind that to make sure that, that, that we maximise those opportunities. Uh, and you've brought me on to my next point, really, in which is, you know, you will be conscious of the fact that 
although the clear focus will be on delivering a great fortnight it, what comes afterwards is hugely important for the city uh, and the legacy that we get from the games is going to be something that people are thinking about right now because if we don't think about it now it won't happen uh, are there any particular objectives being set yet or is that something that uh, we're still working through yeah no no there have and, and you're right it's um it's been a challenge in this event just simply because um back to that point i made earlier you know normally cities are thinking 10 15 years out about their wider strategy and how the commonwealth games could fit into that and achieve those overall objectives significantly in advance of the event coming um we're almost playing a little bit of catch up in terms of the, the, the time scales that we've got in, in the city here but there's been a huge amount of work there's there's a dedicated team now um on, on board in the legacy spaces and this is not remember just about the organizing committee we dissolve we put the event on so it's making sure that the city council the combined authority dcms from a national perspective they're all fully engaged in what they want out of the event as, and as you see not just for the 11 days but longer term whether that's in the space of sustainability whether it's in the space of health and well-being whether it's in the space of um, you know in, inward investment or the cultural sector or and, and there are these strands that have already been defined um, there's a lot of work underway there's a number of bids into government for significant legacy projects in those spaces we've also reached out um, across the community launched a new um, a new brand which is about trying to um, encourage the third sector who have got some fabulous programs that can be aligned with the games and hopefully amplify those help them attract funding um, and make this legacy not just about an organizing really putting a games on and hoping something happens but actually getting a big sort of spider's web of organizations working all towards the same goals that, that will continue long after because some of the power of the games as well is about that softer behavioral change so it's just simple things like if we you know, planning our transport solution, if we, which we will do, ensure, try to ensure it's the most sustainable transport solution. So saying to people, you know, you're not coming in your cars, we might offer free public transport, including your ticket. We might clean up as best we can the canal network walkways between our venues and, uh, and the city centre. And if that's all done, people hopefully use it for the games. Does that lead to longer lasting behavioural change? And that requires... That, that requires a commitment from agencies to continue that support, communication and work long after the games is gone. And that's the bit that we're trying to do now is what does that post-games infrastructure look like? Who owns it? What resources are going to be available to support it? Um, and as you say, there's no point thinking about that in two years' time because it needs to transition from the event. So it needs to be put in place, um, put in place now that it can, can, can continue that work. Uh, and of course, we are blessed with having some major sports and institutions already uh, in Birmingham and uh, the wider West Midlands region. And congratulations to West Brom on their promotion that was confirmed last night. I'm hoping uh, genuinely that Aston Villa survive in the Premier League as well. That would be a great boost for the city. I'm sure that will happen on Sunday now. I'm confident now. Yeah. Keeping everything crossed. Watford will get battered. Um, so in terms of um, that agenda as well, Ian, I'm sure you work in partnership with those people. Uh, but equally, you know, health and well-being is becoming an increasing uh, a big item on the agenda, isn't it? And COVID-19 has demonstrated as well that 
you know, we're going to have a period of time here where people have been inactive. Some people, sadly, uh, in conditions that have not been brilliant. It's great if uh, you're living in a nice semi uh, in a suburb somewhere and you've got plenty of space to work from home and educate your kids. Uh, but we know that there's areas of deprivation in our part of the world, unfortunately, where that won't be the case. And the governments have already uh, sort of uh, made, made a marker, haven't they, and said they'll be looking at, at tackling obesity and other issues that will, they think, come out of the COVID crisis for, for our younger people. Um, so again, I just uh, think that this is a great chance for us to get people engaged with sport, to get those wider community sport users into play because uh, you know as I say we've got some great sporting institutions not just at a professional level but at a community level as well. Yeah and there, there are fab, fabulous um, community sports clubs and groups right across the region. I've been fortunate enough to meet a number of them and uh, and we do a lot of um, PR work as well where they support us and they're fully committed to the games uh, and we are we're working with a number of those around some of these legacy programmes. So Sport Birmingham are, are a big charity in the city who do a lot of that community sport work. Fabulous team there. Um, another great example is um, around how we can use our assets. So, you know, we've got three-on-three -three basketball in, in the Commonwealth Games. Now, it's not a huge sport in the UK right now, but it, but it is a massive sport internationally. So, single net, two teams of three, really fast-paced, high-scoring, tends to be done in a stadium with DJs pumping music out between points. It's a, real, it's a really, really engaging event um, and does attract a much younger demographic, which is great for the Commonwealth Games because sometimes it's struggled with that in the past. But the reason I bring that one up is it's also a fabulous sport in terms of taking it out of arenas and engaging and getting it into the streets. You know, it's not expensive to go and put a three-on-three -three basketball court somewhere or even take an event into the streets in the city. So we're working with an organisation right now on that exact programme um, and trying to us provide the link between our ability to access some elite athletes um, and, and also to, uh, you know, to, to, to reach out to, to communities to get them involved in sport and hopefully leave some longer lasting clubs in, in those areas as well. And that, that's just one small example. Um, I, I wouldn't claim by any means to be doing the hard graft in this space. There's some brilliant organisations out there who are doing that. Uh, our commitment is very much to to try and support them, and as I say, give them the assets they need if we can provide that sort of link between athletes that inspire people um, to get out and play with the, you know, with the, the, the resources, the, the fabulous people and the assets that these groups have as well, then that's, that's a really powerful thing. And, and history would tell you with these events that getting a long-term change in health and well-being simply on the back of a of a multi-sport event is difficult, really difficult. Uh, the stats don't really support it being that effective. And the challenge is, you know, you will always get what people tend to call the Wimbledon effect, that elite sport blip of, great, I've just watched, you know, I've, I've just watched, say, women's cricket in the Commonwealth Games, I'll get my cricket by in the back garden for another week and then it goes away again. So the real challenge is, how do you make sure the club network across the region is ready and equipped for the short-term blip and effectively ready then to keep those people engaged going forward. Um, and that worked in some sports in Scotland. If you look back, the sports who actually resourced up in advance of the games were ready for it. They, their numbers went up and stayed up. Those who weren't really anticipating much of a 
went way up and then, as you would expect, fit, yeah. fell back down. So we're working closely through our sports team with those, cl those club networks and the national governing bodies and others to say, right, okay, let's make sure we capture these people who are going to be inspired and, and keep them uh, in those clubs. So a, a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good work in this space. Uh, and the final question from me, Ian, before I, I turn to some questions that we've had via the email. And I'd just say to people on the call, if you do want to ask a question, put it in the chat room, we'll try and get to it. Um, I've, like lots of people, been watching uh, lots of television, more television than I usually do over the past uh, three months. And I've sort of run out of Netflix box sets uh, to view. Uh, and I was delighted that the BBC showed the rerun of our Olympic opening ceremony. Uh, uh, which was a spectacular uh, event. I'm sure we all sort of look back to those days now and think, "I wish it was. I wish it was then." And with, with less of the uh, the turmoil that's gone on over the last few years with Brexit and now COVID and so on, uh, more to come. Sadly, on some of those issues, um, but that opening ceremony um, can really act as the catalyst, can't it? It was great in Glasgow as well, uh, and so uh, you know, I'm guessing that there is some thinking already going on uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, and then the other point I just wanted to raise here, uh, the BBC have always been the go-to broadcaster in this, uh, in this area, of course, for national sports and events. I'm sure that's still the case. Um, but they're going through some challenges at the moment as well. So uh, I'm guessing that the conversations that are taking place with broadcasters uh, are fairly detailed even now, aren't they? Yeah, so maybe to pick up your first point, I'm, I'm kind of laughing at that because if I open my door, Frank, the, the chap who was head of ceremonies at London 2012 sitting about 10 feet from me, so if he heard that, there'd be a big <laughs> smile on his face right now. Um, unfortunately, he can't. And he's got a big head, so it's probably just as well. But, um, but in all seriousness, Martin Green, who, who's, who's leading our um, sort of wider creative ceremonies and QBR team, he's, he was the man behind that. And, did, and as we all know, did a, did a fabulous job and I am sure we'll do an even better job here but you're right it's it's hugely important not just because it tends to be the highest broadcast audience it tends to get the games off to an amazing start and but also it's um, don't underestimate the huge amount of people that get involved from across the city and putting it on you know six seven eight thousand people probably will be involved either as cast or behind the scenes which is an, it's just a great event to, to be involved in and get your opportunity to be sitting in front of 30, 40,000 people and millions of people on, on TV. So it, you're right, it's hu hugely powerful. And yes, there's a lot of work going on um, on, on that at the moment. And, you know, thinking through how, how we maybe do things a little bit differently and make sure that we showcase the best of the uh, the best of the city and the region and all the innovation that's here is, is kind of the mindset. So there's a lot of dialoguing on and getting ideas. Um, so, so that will be that will be special. But watch this space. Um, on the broadcast um, point, yes, we are talking to. We have to do a deal, right? So we sell the broadcast rights to various countries, and we're talking and advanced discussions with the UK broadcasters. Hopefully, we'll have an announcement on that. I would think within the next couple of months at the, at the latest, um, and then whoever that ends up being uh, will be fully supportive. I'm sure it will be. Um, and, and the great thing for us is getting them on a couple of years out, they then start talking about the event, building it up, using other programming and other assets to really, um, you know, give us that kind of build up, raise awareness and everything else. So, yeah, that's just that's coming down the road very shortly, I would expect. Okay. Uh, right, I'll turn to the couple of questions that we've had in. 
from people who have joined us this afternoon. This is from uh, Kevin Johnson. Good afternoon, Kevin, from Urban Comms. Uh, is your central planning assumption that social distancing will not apply by the time of the 22 games and that public confidence, e.g. in terms of public transport and mass gatherings, will be completely restored? And he goes on to ask, have you had, had to put contingency plans in place for COVID-19 still being present without a working vaccine? Uh, and what would that look like? Good question, Kevin. Kevin and I were liaising an email about something else earlier in, in our talking next week, but this is the standard of his complex questions. I'm a bit nervous about telephone calls. <laughs> but but um, yeah, look, so, so it's obviously at, at front of mind. To answer the question, I think firstly I'd say that we, we are in a fortunate position in, in that we can get, we have the time to watch what else is going to happen in the events and support stadia space. So um, we, we will look at that. I think the big milestone for us will be probably about 10 to 12 months out when we have to go out to, um, to our first stage of ticket sales. Now, um, there's a traditional model for that, but what would tend to happen in these events is that that, that um, ticket sales process happens over a kind of staggered period. So we, if, if we were still in a social distancing environment come this time next August, September, then we, I would imagine, would go out and sell tickets on the basis of um, a reduced capacity stadium in line with best practice that's happening elsewhere in the UK. But that still gives us the ability that if a vaccine came along or we were allowed to increase the capacity stadium at later points in that ticket sales process, that we could obviously um, in, increase those sales. Um, so that's a kind of watching brief. You know, ultimately, the, the real power in these events is about bringing people together, right? So I don't think any of us wants to end up in a situation where we're putting sport on for TV only. But it's, of course it's a possibility, and I'm sure Tokyo are having these conversations in much greater detail than, than we are right now. Um, I, I am hoping, like everybody else, that, that we get back to, to some degree to, of normality well in advance of, of 2022. Um, and then in terms of contingency plans, yes. And, and actually... We have had contingency plans even pre-COVID. So in terms of those programmes that are linked to the games, which were already tight for time, and I mentioned the Capital Ones anyway, pre-COVID, it, it would have been remiss of us not to think about what we would do if those projects aren't finished in terms of either athlete accommodation or in case of swimming, being able to put swimming on somewhere else and, or athletics or whatever else. So that's just good practice in terms of planning and, and, and risk management. Um, and obviously those um, those contingencies um, remain. And it's, it's changed our way of working, as I'm sure it is with a number of businesses. So, for example, um, you know, with economic challenges coming along, who knows what's going to happen with supply chain. So perhaps previously we might have gone out and had a single supplier for some big contracts because it might have created some commercial advantage. You now start thinking about, well, should we have two or three suppliers in that space and spread the work just in case something happens to one of them? And, you know, sensible approaches like that are absolutely in front of mind. So yes, uh, is the short answer, Kevin. We are, um, we're doing a lot of contingency planning and on the COVID stuff, um, it, it, it'll be a watching brief in terms of mass participation and, and hopefully we still have the ability, even that if, if things change much closer to the event, we still have the ability to ramp up ticket sales and other things to make sure um, that, that we get everybody involved as, as best we can. 
our fingers and everything else crossed, uh, I think that uh, we're, we're well ahead of the uh, timescale of 2022 in, in finding a way of, of coping and managing COVID better than we have thus far, because uh, I don't know about the Commonwealth Games, the whole bloody economy would be going to hell in a handcart if we've, we've not resolved things by then. Uh, thanks for, for your questions, Kevin. Um, this one is from Rebecca Simkis uh, from Simkis Guy Recruitment. Hi, Rebecca. Good to see you today. Um, she'd like to ask, how can local independent small businesses who do not have professional bid and tendering teams become a supplier to the games? A great point, actually, because um, you've made reference to the fact that there's a portal uh, and people can go on. And Abby, I think, is, uh, is very helpfully uh, posted the, the link uh, to that portal. Uh, but are there any sort of uh, advisors, people that we can talk to if we're finding the procurement process a little complicated and complex? Yep, we, we, we absolutely recognise that. So we've um, got a number of initiatives un, uh, underway at the moment. So um, the, there's a bit of work going on with the Chamber of Commerce here around um, what we're calling that exact um, initiative is kind of procurement support initiative. Um, there's been one running for over a year now focusing kind of small um, BAME owned businesses of which a number of those have already won um, some work with the games but there's a wider program which is just simply about how do you go about an OJU and a European Union type procurement process and our, our view on that is that you know we, we obviously can't guarantee work for, for companies on, on the games but actually um, in terms of those programs and the support mechanisms for those it, it can mean businesses applying for significant levels of public sector work long into the future. So definitely worth engaging in. So, um, so Rebecca, the, the Chamber of Commerce in, in Greater Birmingham would be the place to start in terms of, of, of those support programmes. Um, did, you, did you say, Frank, that Rebecca was from a recruitment business? Yeah. yeah. And this is where it's challenging and we've been completely open. The Games always has this difficulty in balancing small business engagement and opportunity with exclusivity of services and unfortunately when we went out to market for a recruitment company we also go out and ask uh, if any of those businesses would want to be a sponsor of the games so they invest significantly in the games but in investing in the games they bring what uh, brings with it a degree of exclusivity and um, so we've got a great partner in gi group who, who did exactly that but it, but it obviously then limits the opportunities for smaller recruitment firms. That not, that's not to say it takes them out of the market. We might still have specialist requirements and other things and have the ability to do that. Um, but it's always a balance, if I'm being completely blunt, between us. We have got you know, a commercial target we need to hit and sometimes that means doing deals with big companies who have big pockets to invest commercially in the games and then there's other opportunities where absolutely we should, we're focused on SME businesses. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for your question, Rebecca. Uh, final one from our audience today. Um, this is from Amy Deacon. Uh, good afternoon, Amy. Who makes the decision on the winning mascot entry? Uh, will there be any form of community involvement with the vote? This is always one of the contentious items, Ian. Very important. I'm just laughing because it's a live debate. Um, I, I think it, I, I'm not sure we will go down a community vote process um, the reason being we, we could end up with a what was a Boaty McBoatface example or a and that and that that's the challenge is just you know um, but but look we recognize it can't be one person in a room making the decision so 
Amy, we are, we are working through what that looks like. It's likely to be a, some sort of representative panel with experts in, you know, kind of animation and sport, community reps and others. But I'm not sure we'll just go out straight to choose your best mascot and unfortunately we might end up with a... <laughs> with an <laughs> Yeah. Amy likes putting me both face. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I that just, was a bad example. Yeah, I, I just thought you'd give the job to Ed James and I've done with it really, but never <laughs> Um, see the ubiquitous Ed James um, Ian it's been great to see you this afternoon thanks very much for joining us uh, and it's been uh, you know really good to, to hear about the progress that's being made despite uh, the current climate that we find ourselves in we'd love to get you to a live event in the not too distant future and, uh, and we have some, some live events lined up for September uh, invite only, socially distanced, all that sort of good stuff. Um, so hopefully uh, I'll be in Brom soon seeing some of you face to face. Uh, and I do know uh, you mentioned the Chambers of Commerce. I know it's the uh, Chamber of Commerce Awards uh, in Birmingham this evening. So anybody who's, uh, who's tuning in and, and has been nominated, good luck tonight. Hope, uh, hope you're successful. Uh, and as I say, final, final word, uh, the very best of luck. Uh, to Aston Villa on uh, Sunday in their quest to stay in the Premier League. Ian, great to see you. Good luck with the rest of the work, my, my mate. And uh, 2022 will soon be here, sadly. <laughs> Good to see that. <laughs> great. Well, thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. And I uh, really enjoyed the discussion. And thanks to everybody who's, who's tuned in. And appreciate your time. Thanks, mate. See you soon. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.